This is an AI Group podcast. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the most significant workplace relations issues of the month, February 2020. The full members-only report is available on our website at aigroup.com.au in the policy section under Workplace Relations Policy and Advocacy. And with me today to discuss the key aspects of this latest report, I'm speaking with Stephen Smith. Stephen's Head of National Workplace Relations Policy at AI Group, and I'm Tony Melville, AI Group's Head of Communications and Government Affairs. Today we'll just talk about two issues, wage underpayments and annualised salaries. Now, go first to the wage underpayments. And we've spoken about this in a number of these podcasts in the past, but recently there have been numerous developments in this area of wage underpayments, including some quite high-profile self-declarations. We'll probably get to that point pretty quickly. So, Stephen, what's the latest on the wage underpayments saga? As everyone would be aware, there have been a stream of self-disclosures and public statements by uh, major companies and smaller organisations of errors that uh, they've made in their payroll systems and underpayments that these companies are now uh, uh, redressing. Um, I guess the, the big message here is that you can't set and forget with a payroll system. You really need to continually keep up to date with changes to awards and industrial laws and make sure that your payroll system is uh, up to date because uh, there are some very big penalties that already apply, but the government has just come out saying that they are going to introduce a bill into Parliament imposing criminal penalties for serious and deliberate uh, underpayments. Okay, and so what has our response been to the bill? Well, we don't think that criminal penalties are the way to go in this area of underpayments. Back in 2017, the penalties for breaching uh, awards and industrial instruments were increased by 10 times and the penalties for breaching pay slip and pay record requirements were increased 20 times. So it's now a penalty of more than $600,000 for a breach of of either of those uh, uh, instruments and laws. So the penalties are already very significant. The thing about criminal penalties, of course, is if someone is charged with a criminal penalty, that is not going to deliver any um, back pay to an employee. The civil case to uh, address any back pay that's owing is highly likely to be put on hold by the courts until the criminal charges are dealt with, which could be years down the track. So what are your obligations? So you discover that you've made a significant underpayment going back X number of years. Do you have to declare that to the Fair Work Ombudsman? There's there's nothing in the uh, Fair Work Act uh, that requires disclosure to the Fair Work Ombudsman of underpayments. But, of course, if a company finds it has millions of dollars, for example, of underpayments, it's a very good idea to advise the regulator because... uh, it's highly likely uh, the regulator will uh, become aware of that anyway. But if there's a, a, a more minor underpayment, an issue that needs to be addressed, then there's nothing to stop the employer working with its employees and addressing any errors that uh, have been made. That, uh, that happens quite uh, commonly. Going back how many years? Um, well, there's nothing that 
specifically states how far back an employer would need to go. But if there is a claim pursued in a court, a court can only order six years of back pay under the Fair Work Act. Okay, so if you, if you decide just to be safe after seeing all these big self-declarations that are going on that you should be checking your own payroll, which you're advising anyway, you'd say six years would be a safe bet. Well, six years has some relevance because of the fact that if there was a formal claim in a court, that's the limit uh, to what a, a court can order in terms of the period of the back pay. Okay. And then you get to, think, get, then you get to strategies, which is sort of beyond the workplace advice, and that is how you deal with the workforce on it, uh, how you advise them of it, and then how you deal perhaps with the unions about, you know, either jointly announcing it to the workforce or or working with the union to decide what payment uh, is needed, that type of thing? Yes, there's no one-size-fits-all with this. It depends on a range of things in a, a unionised workplace. Of course, uh, the union would have a role representing its members in that workplace, but a lot of workplaces aren't unionised these days. Um, there, there's a regulator there that a lot of these very large underpayments... Uh, the companies have decided to get the regulator involved in, in the issues, which has been smart. Um, but, you know, one size doesn't fit all. It'll, mm. it'll depend on the circumstances. But the starting point, of course, is for employers to focus on this issue and identify whether any errors have been made. And it's worth thinking about what are some of the common errors that employers do make and, you know, what were the issues with many of these companies. Uh, one of the biggest issues is saying to someone, you are now on staff, we'll just pay you a, a salary and uh, won't worry about an award. If an award applies uh, under its terms, then can't be removed. So things like um, overtime penalties and so on, uh, if there is an award that covers that type of work, the employer needs to be very mindful of how it deals with award entitlements. It can't just uh, ignore them. And this is the problem with a lot of those underpayments. Okay. So if you don't have to declare, is it a good idea, though, to advise the Fair Work Ombudsman if you've got a particularly big one, say, or, or is it case by case? It's case by case, but clearly with some of the underpayments that have been prominent in the media of many millions of dollars, it is a good idea to advise the Fair Work Ombudsman and perhaps give them some prior warning before the issue comes out in, in the media, um, just uh, to give them a heads up, because it's likely that they will be asked for comment uh, anyway about uh, you know, a high-profile underpayment. So if there's fines involved and you self-declare, are you then attracting the fine? Well, what has happened with a lot of these underpayments is the organisation has disclosed the issue to the, uh, the regulator, the Fair Work Ombudsman. The Fair Work Ombudsman has then worked with the company to be satisfied about how much is owing. And then the companies have entered into enforceable undertakings or uh, compliance deeds with the Fair Work Ombudsman about what are they going to do to redress the uh, situation by obviously paying the employees what they're owed, but also what training are they going to do, what changes to their systems are they going to make, 
And in some cases, those companies have agreed to make a contrition payment to the Fair Work Ombudsman. Um, it's not a penalty as such, it's an agreed payment that uh, um, is de determined between the, the parties. Okay, and just finally on this, we've been fighting against this language of wage theft and the Minister's Attorney-General has acknowledged that wage theft is a small part of it, but is the new bill itself, is that going to be a wage theft bill and is there going to be a pretty clear demarcation to the vast majority of people who simply have been caught by the complexity of the system and have inadvertently underpaid as opposed to deliberate? Well, the answer will be known when the bill is introduced into Parliament, but the, the Minister has said that this will be a bill aimed at deliberate, systematic and serious conduct. It won't relate to, uh, to errors. Now, there may well be some new laws uh, dealing with penalties in a wider context, but these criminal penalties, the Attorney-General has made it clear that that's going to be for deliberate, you know, dishonest, if, if you like, behaviour. Okay, we'll keep everyone up to date on that one because there's still a bit to go in the Parliament. Now, the second and last issue we're going to deal with today is related, and it's the new award annualised salary clauses. They're operative from 1 March this year, 2020, and it's got major implications for clerical employees in particular, but only? No, there, there are about 20 awards that have these annualised salary clauses in them. There's a, about 120 to uh, modern industry and occupational awards, so 20 of those have these clauses. But most businesses have someone under the, the clerk's award, whether that be a you know, receptionist, uh, uh, accounts payable clerk or whatever it might be. But this is very problematic because the, the current clause that applies up until the 1st of March is very flexible in the clerk's award. It lets you enter into an annualised salary and uh, if you do that, you pay someone under the relevant clause, you don't have to keep all the detailed records of every hour that they work, every allowance and loading they might have otherwise been entitled to. The Commission, after a case that's continued for about three years, has decided to replace all of the clauses that are there in these uh, annualised salary provisions with highly prescriptive clauses uh, that require very detailed record keeping, that require that the pay records, you know, for time works, be signed by the employee each pay period, uh, and uh, which require regular pay reconciliation of the time worked against the salary paid. So the effect of this undoubtedly is going to be that these annualised salary provisions in awards are going to be much uh, less utilised because it, it's going to impose a major regulatory burden on employers. Uh, also, a lot of employees will not welcome this because it very much will change the culture of a lot of workplaces to one uh, more focused around timekeeping. So what, what will happen then to annualised workers? The, the, the business will have to transfer them over to other operations? Yeah, there, there are a number of options. If a person's covered under the Clark's Award, for example, uh, an employer could choose to just apply the award provisions. 
including the overtime clause and so on. So that's, that's one approach. The employer could choose to apply the new annualised salary clause uh, with all of its red tape burden. That's, a, that's another approach. There's another concept called a common law set-off clause, which is a clause that is quite common in um, contracts of employment, which states basically that during this pay period, you know, during each pay period, we will pay uh, a particular salary and then any award or legislative entitlements that you are owed during that pay period will be taken into account and uh, uh, paid in accordance with the salary. Now that is still open, but the trouble is there is a fair work uh, set of regulations that have a lot of prescription about what you need to do with pay records and pay slips and so on. And if you don't have anything like a, an annualised salary clause to take you out of the operation of uh, you know, the overtime provision in the award, employers will have to apply the fair work regulations, which comes with a lot of the red tape burden that's in the annualised salary clause anyway. So uh, that, that's still very problematic. The, the fourth option is really to have an individual flexibility agreement okay. under the award, which um, could be quite useful, but they do need to be very well drafted. But I think a number of employers will go down this path of uh, working with their employees to implement IFAs. So IFA would be the easiest option, is it? It, it will be in, in many cases because it would be open to an employer and an individual employee to agree on arrangements that um, remove the application of the overtime clause in the award, but um, under an IFA, the employee must be better off overall. So, you know, they're typically the salary, the, the higher than award salary would be set out and some protections would be put in there about the hours that the person's going to be required to work. But if they're genuinely better off under the IFA, then this issue can be addressed through that mechanism. Okay, better call our group workplace lawyers, I guess. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, and so just the last thing, and it's it's related to both of these. Are we seeing, you mentioned about timekeeping, we're we seeing Bundy clocks come back, I suppose. There's, there's new technology and a lot of businesses are now looking very carefully at that. Well, I think at the moment a lot of businesses are struggling to um, understand what this set of changes will require and what they should do in response, particularly this annualised salary decision, which will become operative on, on 1 March. So um, yeah, whether we see the return of Bundy clocks hanging on the wall or, or other technology that's more modern to achieve a, a similar result is, is still unclear. Uh, employers have some options, but this is a very problematic decision and you know, AI group worked very hard to try to convince the commission not to go down this path. We uh, we did achieve some changes to what the commission was planning on doing, but the final decision is still very problematic. Okay, let's see how that goes. So that's it from the briefing on the workplace relations issues, significant issues brief for the month. I've been talking with Stephen Smith, head of national workplace relations at AI group. Workplace Relations Policy, and you can find the report under 
on our website at argroup.com.au in the policy section under Workplace Relations, Policy and Advocacy. So what's Stephen? Talk to you next time. Thank you.